Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by computer guru, breast cancer survivor, and author, Michelle Cox. Although born in Boston, Cox grew up in Meridian, Mississippi. After 27 years in the Navy, her father was charged with raising his baby girl, the youngest of six children. Michelle was his shadow, and at an early age learned to take apart and to put back together televisions and radios. She went to college at 15 and majored in communications. After graduation, her career in communications didn't pan out, so she started her professional career in logistics. When downsizing brought an end to that career, she returned to school to learn about computers, first studying AutoCAD before getting into computer repair and instruction. With over 19 years as a field support specialist and an in-home computer repair business owner, Michelle has become not just an executive computer hardware instructor at Cellbotics, but also the go-to person with customers, many who affectionately refer to her as the computer lady. The students who attend her intensive training find in Cox not only a dedicated instructor, but a mentor who has personally walked many grads into their first job interview. At the age of 55, Michelle was diagnosed with breast cancer. She didn't give up or fall into a depression. Instead, she turned the diagnosis into a wake-up call to pursue her dream to make a difference as a children's book author. She started a publishing company for her books with the hopes of igniting a love of reading and technology in children at a young age. She hopes that her books will have a positive effect, especially in the lives of children, as they are full of wonder and are little sponges seeking information. Her first book in this series is called Mommy, Is the Computer Smarter Than Me? This book will be followed by three other mommy books, Mommy, What Are the Olympics?, Mommy, why can we only see Daddy on the computer? And Mommy, what is aviation? Michelle, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I am absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for asking, and thank you so much for having me. Well, I tell you, you know, I mean, I had 
a very full but very great Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, and I met a lot of great people. And one of the people that I met was you. And one of the things that sort of drew me to you was that we both have that Catholic school background. <laughs> and, you know, because they were talking about things, and, you know, you, I forget what it was she said, but it was like, hey, <laughs> I mean, um, where is home for you? Well, now, I was originally born in Boston. Uh-huh. My dad was in the Navy 27 years, but I grew up in Mississippi. And there's a little town uh-huh. called Meridian. And so when uh-huh. we talk about both being Catholics or both growing up Catholic, I was in a black Catholic school because I grew up in segregation at the time. Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. that's, where, that's where the folks used to live. My, both my parents are deceased. Now I live in Georgia in a little town called Bethlehem, like in the Bible. Uh-huh. Mhm. Wow. You know, I mean, and isn't it because I know, like, I grew up in in Michigan, but there weren't many. You know, most of the people who I knew who were African American are like that they had grown up in non-Catholic churches, and so right. I mean, so in many ways it was like I was like a minority in that sense because well, you said you were. Were you like that, too? Did you find that, you know, trying to navigate that between going to Catholic school and then hearing other voices in the community about church? Well, we always heard that because there's a group of us. Um, there's a, in my particular class, there's 13 girls and 13 boys, and we all went to Catholic school and attended Catholic church, and we all got baptized together except for maybe a very small few of them their parents sent them to school with us because they wanted them to have a good education, but they went like to a Baptist church or a Methodist church. And so that was totally foreign to us. And they would talk about us in school, you know, Catholic, Catholics, you know, the, the black Catholics, like it was some kind of curse or something really bad. And mm-hmm. I actually uh, had a really good experience growing up black and Catholic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's what I think, too. I think that there are certain things about me that if I hadn't had that experience, you know, wouldn't be there. And so, you know, yeah, there were strange things about it, but there are other things about it that are, are kind of kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you go all the way through high school? Did you graduate from a Catholic school? I wasn't able to do that. Um, there were six of us. Mm-hmm. And so because of my mother – and dad, they paid for um, my oldest brother and sister to go. And that's when we had the whole through high school. Uh-huh. Uh, but, and then the rest of us, the other, the other four of us, we got to go because the, they were paying tuition for the brother and sister. Uh-huh. But now, our okay. school got closed down after segregation, uh-huh. Uh-huh. after desegregation, let me say it like that. So. Uh-huh. Now, you know, okay. So, I mean, we have so much. I went to Catholic school through junior high. When I got ready to go to high school, I had, and I will never forget this nun's name, was Sister Mary and Joseph, who came and told my parents, and they they suggested that I go to a public school because I had an aptitude for science and math. And she felt that if I stayed at Catholic school, I wouldn't have all the opportunities that I could or the exposure that I could by going to 
to this public school. And um, so, you know, I transferred, I went to chaos, and, you know, and it was, it was totally different. Your work is in computers and hardware. Do you find, did you catch on to that after you left Catholic school? Was that something that, oh. where you got into science and things in high school? Well, here's the deal. My dad was a TV radio man in the Navy, and he used to mm. have these Motorola cyclopedias. Well, I used to go in there and look at the schematics. And so when I would get a, a radio, I would take it apart, try to put it back together, take it apart, try to put it back together. But when I went, I didn't go to high school. I went to college at 15, and my major was communications with a minor in journalism. See, the computer is my second career. My first career is actually in logistics because the only thing about being in radio, unless you become syndicated, as you well know, you don't make a lot of money at it. Mm-hmm. it. Not that I was trying to make a lot, but I did want to live in $8 an hour is, is what <laughs> 8 to $10 an hour back then was what we were getting, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so um, and I never was able to get a spot. Because mm-hmm. now, you know, even then you had Tom Joyner, which he was taking up the slot of, say, six or seven DJs because he was flying back and forth and he had radio spots and syndication. And then they had other syndicated uh, radio announcers. So you had to be able to slide into a spot or you had to have some type of niche in order to get in and be recognized. So that wasn't going to happen for me. So I, was, I actually became a driver. I went to truck driving school. Mm. And so, but when I came out of truck driving school, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't a truck driver. I actually went to work for Trailways Commuter Transit about six months later and became an instructor and a driver for them in Dallas, Texas. And I was 23 years old. And before mm-hmm. that, I, I, I worked other jobs. Um, mm-hmm. I worked for Frito-Lay for five years and mm-hmm. thought I would be there like my, I, my family, we were always tried to get uh, into a employment position where you work for 25, 30 years, get a pension, you know, and, and retire and do the things that you want to do. And that never happened for me. Every time I tried to get in a spot like that, it would seem that I would get downsized. Mm. So yep. I, I ended up basically um, working for a company here or there and then – Worked for Frito-Lay for five years. Then I went into the transportation industry. Transportation industry was good, but they took a hit. And so every time I was in transportation, it seemed like I would get downsized or we would lose a contract and I would get downsized. So I went to school for computers Mm -hmm. in the 90s. And this was when home computing was just starting to come into the market. And what's funny is... My instructor had dissuaded me to, she wanted me to do either programming or AutoCAD. And I really didn't want to do AutoCAD or program, but I did AutoCAD because that's what the government was paying for with this, the last downsides we had. And so I did the AutoCAD, and, you know, it worked for me because I'm also a welder by trade. And so I was working for a small shop and helping do uh, job bidding and things like that and welding and putting together structures. Right, so, so it wasn't until you... later that I got into the whole, into computer hardware, which is where I'm mm-hmm. at now. 
But, you know, when you were a kid, I mean, when you were younger and you were taking apart everything and putting it back together, did you become that, like, go-to person that, you know, like, this isn't working, Michelle, and you'd say, well, give it here, and you took it apart and put it back together? Or you were you the one that your parents are like, hide the radio, Michelle, we'll take it apart? Well, it wasn't that because I only took apart stuff that belonged to me. Mm-hmm. And then, but see, my dad would be fixing TVs, so I would be back there with my dad fixing the television. Mm-hmm. I was the only student to go to college, and I had a 19-inch black and white that my dad put together for me. Mm. And this was in the 70s mm-hmm. when, you know, uh, like I said, there's six, six of us siblings, so my parents didn't have a lot of money. For me to have a, a TV in my room in college was big. Because most mm-hmm. of us didn't have one. That's nice, too, that you were back there with him doing it. Because, you know, that's, you know, and you've watched I did how everything computer- with Daddy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Really? Uh-huh. Yes. Cool. He taught uh-huh. me how to rewire heaters. He taught me how to strip floors, use a floor machine. Just all kind of really cool stuff that girls don't normally learn, but I'm the last of six, and I'm the only one that he got to raise. So were you just like, were you curious? Did you like sort of follow him around and he said, and, you know, wanting to, were you curious about what he was doing? Well, it wasn't even that. Here's the story. My mm-hmm. dad was out to sea for 27 years, basically, well, mm-hmm. 20 years. Then when I was born, as a, as a, he had six kids. Nobody wants anything to happen to a father of six kids, so he got permanent shore duty. As soon as he got, as soon as my mom and everybody, we moved from Boston to Mississippi. I was nine months old. When my mom got to base, he, she went to my dad, here, this one's yours. I'm done. <laughs> and so me and dad did everything together. We read the comics together. That's how he taught me how to read. My mom taught me on cereal boxes. Um, everything dad did, I did. He would carry me on his shoulder and the whole nine. My dad was a cook in the Navy. I, I, he taught me how to cook. I could, I could cut up and clean a chicken at five this wow. is because of my dad. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, shine shoes. I used to make money in college shining shoes. My dad. Mm-hmm. So I was daddy's little girl, and I did everything daddy did. That is sweet. I mean, I, I love that, too, that she said, you know, like, here, this one's yours. You know, this one's yours. You've been gone. You know, I've done my part. This one is yours. And, then, and that you two are, are so close, and that he was, like, all in. It's like, yeah, okay, give her here, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, because uh, he would get me up, you know, he'd get up in the morning because he's a cook. Any, any cook in the military will tell you. They get up at 3 o'clock, they're on base by 4, 4.30 at the latest. So he would get up, um, do my 2 o'clock feeding, get dressed and everything, play with me, put me back to sleep, and then he'd go to work. When he came back in, here I was waiting on him, you know, oh. and it was me and Daddy. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. How did your siblings feel about that? You know, I mean, he'd been gone all these years. He's back. And, you know, he's got you. I mean, they've had him. I mean, I know they had him in a way, but not like, not that relationship like what you two were developing. Well, um, number one, my sister was older, so she was glad because that means she didn't have to take care of me. 
Because you got to remember, <laughs> both parents work, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I was, as they said, I was a sleeping baby. If daddy wasn't there, I pretty much was gone. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, that's my thing. I, I, I still to this day love to take a good nap. Mm. And, uh, but we all had pairs. My oldest brother and sister were a pair. My two, the two middle brothers were a pair, and then me and my baby brother were a pair. And, you know, because everybody was so gravitated to mom, I think, you know, it was a welcome break, you know, because mm-hmm. it, it still was, you know, mom, mom, mom is like, nope, go, your daddy's here, go ask him. Nope, your daddy's here, go ask him. So, you know, it worked out. And um, mm-hmm. because we had our own playmates, basically, no one, I think it didn't dawn on them that way. And plus we were mm-hmm. fighting so many other things. You know, we lived in a precarious situation because we came from the north going to the south into segregation, and that's something that we weren't used to. You know, we lived in Boston, and, and this is not something I know. This is something mom and dad and, and my brothers and sisters told me. You know, they had white playmates, you know, next-door neighbors and, you know, Jewish mm-hmm. people and Hispanic people. And, you know, not like when we went to Mississippi, it was black and white. And we knew mm. a few Philippines because they were, you know, part of the, the Navy family. Mm. But that wow. was it. And so that was a big culture shock for the whole family. So we were fighting too many things to be separated on, you know, who has the best relationship with dad or mom. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad still had have... his own relationships with the boys as well. Did you still have family in Boston? My uncle was in Boston with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't have any kids, so that was the, the extent of the relatives there. But my dad is from Louisiana. My mom is from North Carolina. I've got a boatload of cousins in Louisiana and a boatload of cousins in North Carolina. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Because I was, I was wondering if, you know, because, like, if you went, did you go there often and, you know, Either did you go summers in Boston or anything like that? But your no, really most of your family was rooted in the South, right? What the thing about it is, um, we were the working poor. We didn't mm-hmm. travel. Mm-hmm. We had our Navy family is who we spent more time with. All all military people will. It doesn't matter the branch. They spend time with other military families, and that becomes mm-hmm. your family. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times, especially when you're talking about for a lot of working class blacks, even whites, what happens is we spend time with the people that we are in war with. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was like when we moved to Mississippi, the Lewises, uh, Mrs. Lewis, her husband was also a, a, a chief petty officer and, and was part of the Navy family. She took my mother under her wing as a mentee, and, you know, my mom would watch uh, Audrey, which is my best friend, since we were, since we moved to Meridian, and my mother mm-hmm. had lost all her clothes. Mrs. Lewis gave her coats and clothes and everything, you know, and just helped her in Meridian to help get us settled in. Hmm. Now you know, you and I came up about the same time, and I know because you know, like your parents, like my parents. I mean, it was like the thing where you're trying. You you did all this stuff, and then you, you looked for that job, but the idea was you're going to get this good job. You're going to stay there, work hard, move up, you know, get X many years and retire. And about the time, 
I mean, I tell people I often thought, you know, I went through a period of time where I often thought that if I got hired, that was the kiss of death because, you know, not long after I got there, something would happen and there'd be downsizing and whatever. And often being one of the last hired, I'd be one of the first let go, you know. And and the things that you got weren't the same. I know that I had worked at one place and my severance package wasn't as much as a white guy's because they said, well, he's got a family and all of this to take care of. And I'm going like, you know, but, you know, you're giving him six months, you're going to give me two weeks, you know. It's not the same. And it seemed like I went through a number of industries where the experience from one helped build it to the next one, but then it be downsized before I settled. Did you, it didn't sound like you got discouraged, though. I mean, you know, well, I've always hustled as a kid, so mm-hmm. I do newspapers as a kid. My dad taught me how to, you know, my mom and dad taught me how to work. We mm-hmm. had to work coming up. I mean, we we would go to hustle bottles. We would go to uh, the older people's houses and, like, do you have bottles that you, we could take to the store for you? And if so, uh, we'll split what we get with you and bring the money back. And mm-hmm. so we... Me and my baby brother, we went down the hill. We were going up and down the hill. One lady, she gave us a couple. And she's like, no, just take them. It's, it's fine. I, get them out of the garage. It'll help me. You come sweep out the garage for me, that'll be plenty. Mm-hmm. One lady, she opened her garage. There were 24 cases of bottles. And see, back in the day, you got a, a soda for a nickel, and you got two mm-hmm. cents back for the bottle. We were like, jackpot. <laughs> oh, my God. So me and him, we run over to A&P, which is, like, probably about a mile or so, get a couple mm-hmm. of carts, come back, and we're filling up the carts, and we're rolling them, rolling down to A&P until we get them all there. And I'm like, ma'am, do you want – and she's like, no, you're fine. You got it out of my garage. I don't have to put them in the car. I'll let them. We're good. So we were always enterprising and making money. So mm-hmm. I was never worried about my ability to make money. Because you know, I knew how to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, and, that, and that's a strength. I mean, you know, that, that sometimes if you tell people, you know, uh, well, how did you do it? And you, and you say, well, you know, I knew how to hustle. I knew how to get out there and find something else to do and look for opportunities and to keep going. But did you ever have, like, that a moment where you went, like, am I ever going to find this, this you know, this forever job? Or... Is this going to be it, you know, looking to find my my space? And how did you begin to look to define that space where you felt a sense of security, even though you might not, you know, have that that 30 years, the union, the pension, and all that? Well, this is one of the things that came to me early. I know you remember the Carter administration, Mm -hmm. and we had the oil embargo, and people just weren't working. There were uh, uh, me and my roommates were all living in, in a two bedroom apartment, and there was like five or six of us. And what we did was we pulled our resources together just so we could survive. But I said mm-hmm. from that day forward, I would always have a skill, a marketable skill, and no matter what happened, I'd be working in any climate. So I learned how to do a, a multitude of things because every time I would get laid off, it didn't discourage me because I was looking for a job when I got there. That's my Mm. motto, and I'll be looking Mm -hmm. for one when I leave there until I started remembering what um, 
a guy I worked for told me. He said the only true freedom, and it's, it's a limited freedom, is to have your own business. That, you know you have to respond to your customers, but at the end of the day, you know, you're your boss. Every day mm-hmm. you get out and hustle, you know how much money you need to survive. You know what it takes to survive. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember working from him, for him, I was like 10. And he used to come in our neighborhood because he was a truck farmer. What he would do is he'd sell his produce and he would sell canned goods and candy and stuff like that to the kids. And so I worked for him for like three summers. Um, I asked him, you know, can I work? He's like, no, most of the kids steal, you know, and it's like, no, sir. You know, I went to Catholic school and I don't steal. My mm-hmm. mom and dad wouldn't have it. And he's like, I, I asked him every day for like two, two or three days during the summer. He finally said yes. And so I got up there and he would try to count it with the, with the adding machine. And I had already counted it in my head, figured the tax in and, and gave him the numbers. And he would check All right. and he's like, keep doing it, keep doing mm-hmm. it. And then he went, he's like, show me where you live. I say, I live right here. So I, he went in, he's like, she's a genius. I want her to work mm. for me. Is that possible? It's like, I came to meet you. And my mom and dad was like, yeah, we know. She's, you know, and they, <laughs> my mother would say OFS because she's really smart, but she didn't have really good common sense. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, I, I don't have any problems with you, you know, her working for you. So you'd be in the neighborhood. You know, when you come in, I'd be ready. You know, I'd sell the candy, get the canned goods, run back and forth because he had this, like, step man that he had modeled out to sell goods with. Mm. And um, so I always, like I said, always been able to work, mm-hmm. always knew how to work, and I knew from that day that I would always have a position. After I left him, I went to work for Sack and Save. And mm. um, we had Native Americans in Mississippi, the Choctaw tribe. Well, when they would come in, the manager would have them me deal with them directly, one, because I knew some of the Choctaws from school and they were really comfortable with me. Number two, they would have $1,000 orders because mm-hmm. they came to buy for the tribe. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I really could go through it and just really, I'd be burning the cash register up, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, he was like, I've never had a cashier that either to the penny or two pennies that's you consistently every day. So it's like, I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, mm-hmm. I count, but mm-hmm. I'm here to work. Mm-hmm. And so work for them until I went to school. And even when I came home, uh, they wanted me to work for them. And that was good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, we're going to take our first break, and then we're going to start talking about computers. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
back here with Michelle Cox. You know, you're talking about how you got in, into into computers, and I mean, and I can remember the first job that I got that had a computer, and you know, I was like a little tech and it had a big space, and you know, it was this this big thing. And now I don't think that it had as much capacity as a cell phone that you walk around with. That how is absolutely correct. Uh-huh. So how did you how did you get into computers? Because you are a computer hardware instructor, and I know that in the period that you've been there, it has changed so much. But what was your first introduction to computers, and when did you find that this was going to be your niche? Well, my first introduction to computers is funny. Uh, a friend of mine is Rhonda, Rhonda Weir. She's a lawyer. And she was going to law school. Well, actually, she was going to school and then getting ready to go to law school. And she had a computer. And she's like, hey, I'm going over to Radio Shack because I'm going to upgrade a computer. And I said, you can do that? And she said, yeah, come on, you can help me. I was like, this is going to be awesome. So that's where I caught the bug at mm-hmm. from Rhonda. And, I, and every time I call her, and I thank her to this day. It's like, it's because of you that I'm into computers. And so um, I went into – Computers, after I got downsized, we lost a contract. I was working for Trailways Community Transit in Jersey, and they lost their contract to another company, so we were getting downsized. Department of Labor says, what do you guys want to do? So I, I want to learn computers. And they sent us over to a place, and I told Lady, I want to learn hardware. And she's like, oh, that's out. nobody's going to be doing hardware. Repairing is not the way to go. You want to be into, you want to be into coding? or you want to be in the CAD. And she says, I offer CAD, I don't offer coding. And so I took the AutoCAD class, and it was okay, but it wasn't fulfilling where I wanted to be. So I went back. I was driving for a little bit. I worked for a Home Depot, and I saw this school one day. I was on my way back from a client's um, delivery, and I saw the school, Computer Learning Centers in South Plainfield. And I was like, I'm going to get my car. I'm going to go back. And I'm going to see if I've got it what it takes to be a computer repair person, and even if they offer it. So I went, and they give you an aptitude test. And the lady said, you scored extremely well. You'll do extremely, you know, you'll be good at this. And so I took the, uh, it was a year and two months. I took the course, paid for it, and that's how it started. I would go, and mm-hmm. I was working for a little welding company, and so I started doing their books, fixing their things, and I was also welding, and I was the office manager as well as the, the site four person at the time. So I was doing a multitude of jobs. Then when I went to Home Depot, I ended my driving career there and started my computer career with Home Depot, which served me very well. I was with them until I moved out to Vegas, and what happened was, we had a manager that was just not very nice. We're just going to put it like that. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting fired. So I did a little auditing uh, welding job, but I went to work for Fry's Electronics. I was working there. I was in the electronics, and I was getting more exposure. But I wasn't doing the repair part of it yet because you need a CompTIA A-plus to be in their repair center. It's like, fine, I'll work my way up. So this gentleman came in, 
and I was helping, uh, helping customers because I'm good at sales. I don't have to sell. It's just if you need it, I can tell you what the specs are because those are the kind of things I remember in my mind. So I'm helping clients, doing customer service, keeping the place up. And the guy, Kevin, he, he came in, he, he watched me, and I could tell he was watching me. And then he came and talked to me and says, I would like to hire you. And I was looking at him, and he's a funny-looking little guy. I was like, I don't know you, so that's a no. So he, he came back for like two weeks straight. He said, I love the way you deal with customers. I really want you to come and work with me. I said, well, that's a good start. I don't mind working with you, but I don't want to be hired by another company. He, he came back another few days, and it was my off day. And I said, well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll see what you're doing. If it's comparable to where I want to be, then we can talk about working together. If it's not, then that's not going to happen. So what, what it was is he was doing in-home service. He actually started the business doing in-home service before there was a geek squad. Mm. He ran a company called Microtex out in Las Vegas. That's where I was living. So I went with him. And while this guy is a phenomenal uh, as far as business is concerned, phenomenal as far as networking is concerned, he knows Japanese and reads and writes Japanese fluently. His customer service skills are very, 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 very limited. I mean, he has those soft skills don't work for him. He was actually mm-hmm. arguing with the client. And I was like, no, no, no. I need you to de-escalate. You go outside. Let me handle the client. So I talked to the client. She was like, he sold me a refurbished computer, which is fine, but the DVD drive doesn't work. I said, is that, is that all that's wrong with it, ma'am? She said, that's all. So I went out in the car, got a DVD drive, put it in. We checked everything. So everything's working. You got all your data. Yes. So him and I had a conversation. I said, you handle the business aspect as far as the business clients and the networking. Let me handle the home clients, and I promise you, you will do well. Other than that, I'm going back to Fry's. And he's like, deal. So we became partners. He's like, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to be partners. I'm going to give you 50%. Great. So I went to Fry's, gave him my notice, and we started working together. So the first day I went out, uh, people were calling, setting up the appointments. I went out to 12 appointments. I brought back 12 computers to be repaired. When I brought them back to the shop, he was like, oh, my God, I've never brought back 12 computers. And I told him, I said, you forget. You're a, net- you're a networking guy, and you're dealing with the business community. But when you deal with the home community, you don't have to sell people. They want mm-hmm. our services. They already want what we have. So – because they want what we have. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sell them anything. All you got to do is be honest and give them what they ask you for. Mm-hmm. And what they're getting with me is what they ask for. I know how to do the good, better, best, because some people just want what, what you call them for fixed. That's all they want. Some people want that to be fixed but look to later upgrading or getting more repairs. And those are the things that you have to look for. And people give you the clues to where they want to be. How did you get to be called the computer lady? Well, that's a funny story. <laughs> um, well, I moved from, uh, me and my partner, we moved from Vegas. And, and we moved to Georgia. And I was doing, I had my own business here in Georgia as well. We were, um, 
I was working for Best Buy, I had my own business, and um, then I was doing temp work. And temp agencies would call me. It's like, can you do temp work for, say, three or four weeks, IT work? Absolutely. So I had done work for a company called Insight Global. And I had gone to Johnson & Johnson and other companies they sent me to, and a guy called me. It's like, you're one of the best technicians I know. Can you do me a favor? We've got this company that has a direct hire, temp to perm. It's like, I'm not interested. I'm getting my business off the ground. don't want to really be bothered with it. No, no, no. He's like, just do me a favor. Work until I can find somebody for the position. This is a big client for us. We don't want to lose them. And that was CompuCom Systems. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right, I'll work for a few months. You've got to find a replacement because I really want to get my business off the ground. So I was on the BB&T account. And... Would, I would go in, fix things, and they'd be like, it's Michelle, the computer lady. Get her. Don't, <laughs> don't let her leave. Do not let her leave. I need mm-hmm. her to look at this. Everywhere I go, it's Michelle, the computer lady. So it kind of stuck. It wasn't something mm-hmm. I gave me. It's something that everybody else gave me. It was like, uh, even when I go, I service Home Depot, Johnson & Johnson, all the different companies. It's Michelle, the computer lady. Get, do not let her leave till I see her. I need her to look at this particular computer. And so... I worked for CompuCom Systems for about 10 years, and that's how Michelle the Computer Lady came up. Mm, that's cute. Oh, that's so, I knew there was a story behind it. There was something about it. So, you know, I was, you know, doing a little diving and looking at about you, and all of the things that I read about you on the Cellbotic site, it says that you offer supreme mentorship for students and that you personally walked many grads into their first interview. Wow. Well, well, this is the deal. When I went to computer schools, we had one computer that two people worked on. They gave us one little dinky tool set. No disrespect, anybody out there that's my instructor because that wasn't your thing. But I said if I ever got the opportunity to teach, I would make sure, number one, that you got full support, you had just about every tool you needed to go to work. And that if you needed somebody to go with you or you needed somebody to say, hey, to a, just go to a prospective client and say, hey, I, I've got somebody that needs to interview, and, and just kind of like just be out there until you, got, until you got out. Sometimes you just need that, especially when you're new. Mm-hmm. And so that always has been where I want to be. If I'm going to give you something, I wanted to make sure that, you got all the things you needed. So when you were ready, everything started to be smooth sailing. One of my, one of my grads actually just called a, a couple of weeks ago. She was really feeling, like, beat up. And I was like, you're spectacular. She's like, would you write a recommendation letter? I was like, absolutely. I mean, you were spectacular. I mean, mm-hmm. just everything I threw at her, you know, the hardest stuff. She never backed down. I said, just remember, say your prayers, keep, just, keep, just keep putting in these applications, start to uh, develop your business model, call us if you need support. She called because she, she called one day and she was just like, I don't, I don't know what's wrong. I'm not getting the clients I want to get. I said, don't worry about it. You know, Nicole was talking to her. I said, you got it. You got it. You just, just keep practicing, keep doing what you're doing. 
She got a call four or five hours later. Company called her mining company. $28 an hour and $125 a day per diem. And so I had that proud mom moment. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> one of mine. <laughs> and that's just one of them because I had one guy, uh, his name is William. He has ADHD, really, really bad, had a hard time focusing. And so even after teaching a 10-hour day, I would keep him back two or three hours every day for the four days. It's like you have to get it. Your failure is my failure. Your success is my mm. success. And so, like, no, you have to get it. You don't have a choice. You must get it. He left us. He went out. Within a week, he had a, he had a position. His employer called us, says, this kid is amazing. He is repairing everything we throw at him. Everything. And so uh, she's like, I don't know what you're doing, but, you know, he's great. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're turning out great students. And so that makes me feel the best, that I'm sending out students that really know what they're doing. When they get in the industry, people want to hire them because they have our name and our reputation standing behind them. But, you know, that mentorship is something – Okay, besides the Catholic school connection, one of the things that I also noticed about you, we're in this conference, and there were two people who up there, they were talking about writing and everything, and you stepped up and told them, you know, like, that if you need help, if you need that, here I am, I want to make sure you get my card and doing it, that mentoring ship seems to be like hardwired in you to, to reach out and and help others be achieved like you did. Where did that come from? That actually came from Mrs. Bordeaux in Catholic mm-hmm. school. Um, mm-hmm. The thing about our Catholic school, we did a lot of plays, but we also did a lot of community involvement. And we also did where we would go to, say, the nursing homes and this, that, and the other, sing, you know, we would sing or do a play or whatever, and so that's always been there. And I've always been a really smart kid. I was always really bright, always excelled. And I was always picked to either be some type of ambassador or to mentor new kids coming into the school, whether that would be in private school or public school. And that's always been who I have. That's just there. That's a God thing. That really is not me or Anything I've done, that's just God. So, you know, and I, because it's a transitional point in your life, and I've been there, you were diagnosed with breast cancer at age 55. And, you know, it can be, it can be almost overwhelming for a moment. You know, you have that minute where it's like, what did they just say to me? <laughs> or what do, I, what do I need to do, you know? To, to sort of, you know, sort of get your, your, get back on the track of how you're going to handle this. And you didn't give up. You didn't fall into depression. It sounds like a lot of what had gotten you through life kicked in to help you deal with this diagnosis. Well, actually, you bring that up. I was 54 when I got diagnosed. It was actually mm-hmm. two weeks before my birthday, which mm. was really sucking. 
because I was on my way to a conference in Charlotte, uh, not even a conference, I was to teach. I was training uh, cell phone repair, and the doctor called me and was like, you know, I called the doctor because I've been waiting on him all day, actually. I've been calling, you know, he's been in uh-huh. surgery all day, and I was like, I don't care what time you get out. I got to I gotta know what's going on, I'm, you know. I'm going nuts out here. And so I was on my way to Charlotte because I had to pick up uh, um, one of my colleagues to bring him in with me. And he calls me. I'm in uh, South Carolina. He calls and he's like, you know, I regret to inform you. Mm-hmm. You have breast cancer. And I was like, I was in such shock. I, I, all I could do was say thank you. I, I didn't ask him the type, the grade, or anything. I was like, my mind was there. <laughs> I was just done. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man. So got there. I picked up Tommy Brock, and we went to the hotel. And, um, but before I picked up Tommy, I called my partner. I said, you know, uh, the doctor called, and it's breast cancer. And she was like, I don't believe that. Why are you mm-hmm. telling me that on the phone? And she literally was, like, upset. And I'm mm-hmm. like, no, really. And she's like, I'm not accepting it. And she was, like, mad, and she hung up. And, and she called me back later, but I picked up Tommy, and I was like, Tommy, you know, and she's like, what's up? You were heavy. You were never heavy. I was like, man, doctor told me I had breast cancer. I, I don't even, I can't, I'm not hardly even processing. I'm just like, I'm just on numb balls right now. And mm. he was like, oh, my God. And so he was like, and, you know, we went, and, you know, I, I think I bought a bottle of wine. It's like I hardly slept the whole night and had to teach the next day. I was like, Tommy. It's going to be me and you, brother. I'm going to be, I am going to be leaning on you today because, you know, I, I drank, what, uh, two glasses and didn't feel anything. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I mean, I sleep where snot. And so I got up, went through the conference, and, and that, whole, that whole week was like a blur. Mm-hmm. And so I got back to the house, and I was like, you know, let's talk, let's sit down and talk. And she's like, I'm not going to believe it until the doctor tells me. So mm-hmm. the week passes, because I, doc- I have an appointment with the doctor in, in a mm-hmm. week. So we go. He's like, it's breast cancer. This is the grade. This is the stage. Do you, you know, what do you want to do? You know, I recommend this, that, and the other. And so I was like, first question, recurrence. Is there a chance? Those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. he's, and he's like, well, I really won't know. We, we haven't got the, you know, until we remove it, we won't know the total pathology. And I'm like, okay. So I was like, look, it's my birthday next week. We're not doing any surgery. <laughs> I'm, I, look, uh-huh. it's my birthday. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not uh-huh. doing any surgery until after my birthday. That's just. That's just it. I'm just not. I'm going somewhere. The kids and I, and I was like, you know, even told my partner. It's like, don't tell my family. Don't tell the kids. Just, I just can't emotionally babysit anybody. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. you can get support, but just, I don't want them calling. Are you going to die or anything like that? I just, I can't do it. And I said, I know that's a lot to ask, but I, I really just. I need a process, and I need a process without the pressure. And um, after that, you know, made the decisions like, hey, we'll have the mastectomy, and then we'll we'll go from there. 
And uh, so had the mastectomy, and I started really uh, uh, just started reading more intently about breast cancer, um, the different types of breast cancer, you know, um, life expectancies and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And so you know with, with a cancer diagnosis, you know how just your mind just goes on its mm-hmm. own. It's, it's all, your, your own worst enemy in that moment. It's funny because often, like, you'll find people who later on will say, like, you know, it's like, you know, we always talk about how often we have to come out. People don't want to come out about cancer, you know. And and I understand how your partner was because um, I had a partner who was sort of like that and it was like that, you know, that look, you know, and, and that that freaking out. And it's like, you know, I need you to, to come with me you know, and I need to, you to, to help me hear some of this because there's a moment when, you know, I don't want to miss anything. I want to know what's going on. I want to hear that. But also within the community, too, you know, there still seems to be a stigma about cancer. And, you know, and to talk to people about it and to say, you know, do the breast exams, find out, you know, deal with the diagnosis, like you said, do your homework, find out that there's these different grades of it, what's it mean? Have you found that that you've had to do that that stage of coming out and talking to people about it and to let people know that, you know, hey, you know, yes, but, you know, I'm here. Um, you and I have talked about, you know, how, you know, every day is precious. Because, yeah, you, you know, but do you find that that's another coming out experience that you've had to go through? Uh, I'm going to say for me, no, because mm-hmm. I've, all, I've been up front about my story um, mm-hmm. from day one. You know, I let people that don't know me know that I have breast cancer because it's something I share on a regular basis. One, I mm-hmm. have this really deep voice, and so I meet a lot of people, and the first thing they'll say is, sir, may I help you, sir? Mm-hmm. I said, no. It's not, sir, it's ma'am. I'm just missing the breast part. And they, they go, oh, you know, one, one day, and it, when I first was into it, because I was a little, I was a little tender about missing, my breast being gone. Uh-huh. You know, that whole not feeling quite like I was a, a whole person because I didn't have my breast. And somebody's like, sir, and I was like, no, it's ma'am. It's like the breast is gone, but the bottom still works, okay? <laughs> so, uh-huh. no. Uh-huh. And so those kind of things. So I, I go through it on a consistent basis because I have this, as you know, and you can hear this uh, really a deeper tone than most women. Uh-huh. And so when you go through that, it, that's, it, it's something I go through every day, even uh-huh. when I was uh, – even when I had breasts, it'd be, I'd go for an interview, and I'd be dressed, and, you know, somebody's looking down and not even looking up at me, and I'm like, hi, I'm Michelle Cox. I'm here for the interview. Like, one moment, sir, and I was like, and then they'll look up, and they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And like, it's like, mm-hmm. got to pay attention. <laughs> I'm not the first woman with a deep voice. I won't would be the mm-hmm. last one because mm-hmm. uh, as my guidance counselor used to re- remind me, uh, Tallulah Bankhead was um, – a lady that had a deep voice. And then, uh-huh. um, you know, then there's Whoopi Goldberg. 
and there's Suzanne mm-hmm. Flechette, and there's B. Arthur. So there's so many people that have mm-hmm. this deep quality oh, oh, type voice. Hey, Maya my, my Angelou, her voice is sort of on the deep scale. You know, Barbara Jordan. I mean, you know. And so, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of those people, then what we get is people starting to, re- oh, let's talk about um, the, the lady that played uh, Weezy Jefferson. She had a deep voice. But mm-hmm. it's different when you talk about television and you have people that you see in your real life mm-hmm. when you meet people. Because I remember meeting another sister, and she had a voice deeper than mine. And I was so happy because there was someone else that knew my story, knew mm-hmm. my experience. Mm-hmm. So you say that you, you, you turned your diagnosis into a wake-up call to pursue a dream that you had. So how long had you wanted to be a children's book author? I didn't want to write children's books. That's what's funny. I wanted mm-hmm. to be an author. I was going oh. to write my story and a couple of other stories because um, I was already technical writing for the company I was with. I was training, and I was a technical writer and a knowledge engineering specialist. And um, the children's book kind of came like I was at home, and God was like, I mean, I was just like, my mind was crazy. What am I going to do? Am I going to be able to go back to work? I can't lift my arms. Just a whole lot of stuff that was going through my head. And so um, my, um, my guy came to my rescue. God was like, mm-hmm. look, you need to relax. I got you. And all of a sudden, these stories just start popping into my head. I mean, they're, I, mean they're, I'm, I can't write fast enough that mm-hmm. the stories are coming. And I can see the visualization in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote my first book in a couple of weeks. Wow. I wrote it in a, in a couple of days, but, you know, you've got to go through because when you write mm-hmm. a book, you know, you've got to go and correct and da 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 and, you know, start to make storyboards and things like that for it. But in two weeks, I had a finished written book, and then it was time to, you know, try to find an illustrator, la, 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 la. So I took my 401K, all the money I had is sunken into these books because mm-hmm. God gave it to me. It's like, here, you know, I'm not going to let you be broke. I'm not going to let you be poor. You know, I, I'm going to give you something that, that's yours to share with the world. And I love kids, which mm-hmm. makes it really great because I have grandkids, and some of that it comes from having the grandkids. And I've always been able to tell little funny stories, and I wrote poetry and stuff like that so wow wow well, we're going to take our second break and then we're going to we're going to come back and talk more about this writing you know and i just learned something else we have in common i too have written poetry and children's books i'm telling you i think we were separated at birth i don't know. i think so <laughs> okay well we'll be right there Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast 
on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and we are talking with now. We started with the computer lady, and now we're talking with the author. You know, um, I wrote poetry. Uh, in fact, I think I wrote poetry first, and I did, I did want to do, I still have in mind, you know, that great novel and the things about my experiences, and I've written that. But part of what made me, and when I was reading about your, your book, your children's book, part of what made me write a children's book was like I lived in a part of the city where I had some friends who had a little girl, and we would go around and we would see things, and things that she couldn't quite get, like she'd see people who were homeless, she'd see people who were hungry, and she'd go and she'd want answers. And I started to write a children's book to break it down in a way to help her understand that sometimes bad things happen to good people, and, and how do we talk about this? And one of the things that I was reading about about you, not only talking about igniting the love of reading, but technology, explaining these things, and even in some of the titles. So what was the first book that you wrote? Well, the first book I wrote was Mommy is a Computer Smarter Than Me. And uh-huh. it only made sense because I love computers, I love kids, mm-hmm. but kids are naturally curious. So all my books have the central theme of mommy and the child is asking a question because that's what kids do. I mean, even when the grandkids, mm-hmm. they're like, well, Grammy, why? Well, Grammy, why? And why does this happen? Why does this? And I remember even myself as a child, I would ask my mom, you know, well, why is this? And some things she could explain and some things she couldn't. But because I'm also a technical writer, I have the ability to take concepts and simplify them. And so with that, God was like, here you go. Mm-hmm. So the, the, this particular book is actually nonfiction. It's a big picture book, so it explains to children how computers work. One of the lines are, computers aren't smart, but they're really, really fast. They execute mm-hmm. in a nanosecond flash. So. Mm-hmm getting them into that, but it also explains how much more diverse and how much smarter than we are than a computer. A computer is a tool that we use, but we are smarter and more diverse in every way than a computer. Mm -hmm. And so that's how that came to be because I've been doing technical writing. Um, I was on a large account for the, the company I used to work for, and so what I would do as a knowledge engineering specialist I would um, I would take the time and um, actually run through processes. So, say we had a repair on a, a or a particular problem with a piece of equipment. A lot of the equipment I've worked on, so I would mm-hmm. take it apart, put it together, take it apart, put it together, and then find all the commonalities of why this isn't working or why this isn't working or what the problems were that the technicians would come up, and I would write these knowledge sheets. Mm-hmm. 
So and you were, I was, yes, ma'am. As you were writing it, did you think back to little Michelle with her dad and watching him take things apart and, and, and that interaction and how you felt as a child? Did, did you tap into that? No, actually, uh, my, I have a couple of favorite books. One is Charlie the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. by Ronald Dahl, and the other one was Madeline, Two Little Girls, mm-hmm. Twelve Straight Lines. So all, mm-hmm. my, all my books are right, they're in rhyming prose for kids. It took me back there, not so much mm-hmm. working with Daddy, but more so that, you know, if I wrote a children's book, it would be the picture book, and you could look at it and see the pictures, and it have the words. And so, you know, really that whole, I wanted to be that type of children's book author. Everything would mm-hmm. rhyme, and it would be easy for kids to catch on because it was rhyming. What age group were you looking at? My age group is, because uh, it's a story time reader from 4 to 10. So you, uh-huh. say you start a story with kids, you're on the way to bed, and, you know, you might read a few pages this night, a few pages that night. And then I have the bigger, the older children, say six, seven, and eight. You know, once you've been reading to children, they start wanting to read it back to you. And Mm -hmm. so that's my concept of you reading to them, and then they get it where it's their favorite book. They pull it off the shelf every once in a while. Mm -hmm. I just love this book. It's amazing. It's great. And so every time I go somewhere and I put the book in a child's hand, they get over in the corner and they really start like, oh, I like this book. I've had 12-year-olds that read the book and they're like, oh, I like it. And I'm 12, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I can't be caught with a, with a kid's book, but I like the book. So those kind of reactions make me happy. Have you read it? Have you, like, gone, like, into a school or something and read it? No, I'm hoping to do that because, you know, the thing about it is schools aren't like it when we used to be when we came mm-hmm. up. You know, you just can't walk into a school. You have to get an invitation. You have to know mm-hmm. some people. And so what I've been trying to do is get with, like, say, the superintendent or mm-hmm. principals and say, you know, can I come for story time or teachers that invite you. And that's what has to happen. And that's just because the way – our world is now, we have to make sure that our children are safe so I can understand that. So I'm mm-hmm. hopefully getting some invitations and people are like, hey, come to my school, read, my, read your book in front of the kids, and, you know, we can, we can do those things. Mm-hmm. Well, just one of the things that I did when I wrote my children's book was um, I, I, I did like what you did to find them, but then March is National Reading Month, and it sort of seems like, I had started putting it down and looking at it, and when we got to March, like they were looking for people to come into schools and read. And then I, I actually had a book to read, and I was like, okay. Uh, and, you know, and it was interesting to see kids who were like, you wrote this? I mean, you, I read it the first time I've met a, a person who actually wrote a book. Have you had that experience with kids who, like, who have had your book and go like, you wrote this book, you yeah. know? Yes, especially because, you know, you go to church, and I used to take the book to church and everything because that way, you know, kids can, they, they get restless, you know, mm-hmm. for two, and, two or two and a half, three hours. So, you know, you got a book, you give them a book, and they're like, and they're looking like, you wrote this? I like this mm-hmm. book. Or I could be somewhere and, you know, have friends, and they have kids, and they, they get the book, and they're like, 
and even I had the young lady I was telling you about, the one that just got the, the, the job with the mining company. Mm-hmm. Her husband and the kids were there while she was in school because our school is only eight days total. Mm-hmm. It, it's like a boot camp. So the kids came in and, you know, I read the book to them. They're, they're like, Mommy, she wrote that book and she can teach. <laughs> so they were really mm-hmm. intrigued with that whole thing of being mm-hmm. able to write a book and also teach computer hardware. So, you know, those kind of things. It kind of goes hand in hand, in hand to me. It does. Well, uh, you know, but, you know, sometimes you have people who will see you do, like, something, and then you have that creative side, and it's sort of like, well, how do you do that? But, you know, we do have two sides of our brain that we're able to work and do, our, you know, and to do this, you know. So you can write a book and be creative and at the same time, you know, go in and fix a computer or teach people how to click, to um, fix a computer. So you said the first book, you were able to write it, you were able to get storyboards. What about how did you find your illustrator and how did you find it in yourself to let them interpret parts of it through their illustrations that maybe weren't initially what you had in your head? Well, initially a colleague of mine was supposed to do the illustrations. Uh-huh. But she was really, really busy, and she said, can you let my son Theo do it? And I was uh-huh. like, okay, that's going to be different. Because, you know, <laughs> Theo's a young person, not a, a kid, but like a teenager. Uh-huh. And he did comics. I'm like, all right. I was like, I'm going to give him a try. Because, you know, I, as, as the one thing about being an author, especially when you, you're talking about books and especially when you're talking about visuals, you're looking for some. You're looking for a certain type of visual, and sometimes you're unwilling to relinquish control. That just is how it is. So, I I gave him the cover. I was like, I want you to do the cover, and we, if you do the cover well, then we'll get you to do the rest of the book. If not, then I'll find someone else to do the book. Mm-hmm. So I gave him the cover, and I told him, you know, the storyboard. What I wanted, I said, you know, it's got to be a mom, little boy. He's got to be, you know, pointing at the computer and asking mommy the question. And she's going to be working on her computer, you know. And so the first time he sent me the picture, the mom was like a teenager. And I'm like, no, the the the, the baby, the, the the child was right. The the mom was like, mm-hmm. I'm like, we're not promoting teenage pregnancy here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's got to be a little older, you know. She don't want to be too old, but she don't want to be really young either, you know. I said she needs to look about about 26, 27, not 19 or 18. Mm-hmm. And so he sends me back one. And the mom looks like grandma. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> and he's like, show me what you need. So I find a, 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 a picture that's close of a friend of mine. They're kind of close, you know. And I send that one. And so I was like, kind of like that. And he's like, I get it. I was like, yeah, it's got to be mom, but not teenage mom, not grandma, but mom. Mm-hmm. And then, and I was like, he, he, he sent the cover back, 
That's the cover that you see today. It's like, cool, we can do this. Mm-hmm. Now, the little boy got changed because he was having problems keeping the consistency of, of the – because the kid actually changed. This is not the original kid that was on there. That's why the kid looks a little bit more animated. Um, but he had, was having problems with the conceptuality of getting the moving and everything with the particular child that we had drawn in the first segment. And it's like, no problem. I'll have a problem with you changing the child as long as it's a kid and not a, not a, not a small adult. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. And so we agreed upon it. And then I sent him the story. And I was like, it's broken down this way. And I was like, you know, and so every page he would come back, and I was like, and then I'd tell him what to change. And that's how we came with the, the illustration of, of the entire book. Um, we went through it. We poured through it. And, you know, there were some hits and misses, some things that had to be changed. And then we had our little kid focus group because uh-huh. kids uh-huh. know what they like to see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we took a little group of kids. I did. Took a little group of kids. And I was like, put the book down in front of them. Everybody had their own little book. It's like, okay, tell me what you think. And it's like, oh, this seems interesting. It's like, and then, you know, a couple of them was like, well, computer's a big word. And so, you know, a couple of places we broke it down. So people, you know, the whole um, syllabization of, of the word, so they could break it down and read it a little better, those kind of things. And so we did that and a few other little tweaks. But other than that, the kids, like, they love the story. They like the pictures. They like the fact that the, the words on one side and the pictures on the other. So it makes it good mm-hmm. for story time, especially in school. So the focus group came back really, really positive. Um, I think there was one one child said it was a little hard. But mm-hmm. other than that, everything else was, we, we got about 85%. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking for, about 85%. Mm-hmm. But everybody, so, even little kids, I mean, children that couldn't read, love the pictures. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what from, you know, because you didn't, you had done technical writing, You've done a lot of stuff. What did you apply to this process? And then you also started a publishing company. Why did you start your own publishing company, and what did you feel that you brought to it from your life experience, doing the technical writing, that not only through your works with this publishing company, that you could help other writers do? Well, the publishing company started because you know who J.K. Rawlings is. She, she writes the Harry mm-hmm. Potter series. Mm-hmm. Well, it took her six, almost seven years to get her books published after being turned down hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, when I went to, to the oncologist, I didn't have the, um, I didn't take the chemo. It, 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 and I know you know what that means. I, I didn't have the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my doctor said because I wasn't having the chemotherapy, I'll give you five years. And mm-hmm. I told her, I said, it, was, it is whatever God's going to give me. Thank you. But, mm-hmm. but knowing that, you know, she's like, hey, five years, blah, blah, blah. Like, well, if it took J.K. Rollins six, no one knows me. 
uh, and, and the doctor's talking about five, I better get I better get a move on. That means I need mm-hmm. to self-publish. So I um, basically took a crash course in self-publishing and um, got my LLC and did all the things I needed to do to be able to be my own media company. And that way I could self-publish all my own books because people self-publish mm-hmm. without being a publishing arm. But I decided that if anybody wanted to publish, I own my own ISBNs and all the things that it takes to publish books. Mm-hmm. And that way, you know, they don't have to go through people that are like, oh, I'm only interested in this or, no, this isn't good and this isn't good because it's their own little particular standard. It has nothing to do whether the quality of the materials are good. It's mm-hmm. what they're looking for. It's what they think sells. And the only problem with our mainstream publishing is sex for themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the cover of magazines, it doesn't matter whether it's Essence, Ebony Jet, uh, Life, or whatever. Unless it's something established, there's some type of racy cover. Mm-hmm. The, the, the books that people are publishing have some type of racy cover. The only way you don't get that is, you know, with the kids' book, it, it's pretty much pure, but even there, you know, they have one standard. So I wanted to do something a little different. And here, let, let, let's, let's be totally honest. We live in a time where, you know, people's minds aren't open to change. Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to do was first introduce a book that everybody that they could that everybody could relate to. And when we talk about everybody, I'm talking about mom, dad, sister, brother, whomever. I let Theo, he's my illustrator, have mm-hmm. reign with um, the character's culture. Um, the as you, I don't know if you've seen the cover, and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. you have, but to everybody, the character looks white because Theo is white. Mm-hmm. So he he drew what he knew. And I, I was like, I'll accept the concept. Um, but the point of it is, it's not so much that Theo is white or his mom is white. The point is, the mother is a woman in technology teaching her son about technology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at the real big picture is there's not a lot of women in technology. There's a notable few. Meg mm-hmm. Whitman is with HP. Carly Fiona was before her. But even when you go, we talk about tech and tech sector companies. They're talking about how few women there are. I'm a woman in tech. I was in field support for many years. Guess what? I was the only woman in in the technical department Mm -hmm. for a long, long time. I was the only woman on my team for several years. And any time I would see other women in the industry, what I would do is like, wow, you know, get to know her, get her a card, change numbers. You know, mm-hmm. let's support each other as women. 
so if you look at the bigger picture, it's not so much that my characters are white in this particular book. It's that these are women in technology teaching their children. Because my next book coming out, and it's already written, the mother is a African-American aviation engineer. All right. She's teaching her daughter not only about physics, but the forces of flight and the life of Bessie Coleman, who was the mm. black first female commercial pilot. Uh. So, but my thing is you have to have a starting point. And I have another illustrator for, for this particular book. Uh-huh. Because I'm not saying that somebody white can't draw somebody black, but I think we draw what we know. Uh-huh. We and draw I think the shapes some... and the colors that we uh-huh. know. Uh-huh. And I, like you said, the bigger picture is, is the concept. You know, for mother teaching the son about computers, you know, the, the black aviator. I mean, it's like, which is saying to kids that, you know, also you can learn from mommy. You know, you can learn from mommy. Mommy has value. Mommy has, is more than just mommy and doing it. But it's just really important, the concept that people are getting. And so it doesn't, you know, you aren't writing a book for all black kids. You aren't writing a book for all white kids. You're writing books that are telling kids these important stories and and these important lessons and I think that that's what being your own publisher allows you to do because often mainstream publishers when you go and talk to them they want to change something you know it's like well we could make it a little bit no you know there's something they want to change everything they, they, uh-huh. they want they want it to be the way they want Mm-hmm. And the only thing about that is they dilute the story a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And so you have to decide as an author and even as a publisher, you know, what your standard is. And my standard is, for me, everybody has their own story they're going to tell in their own way. And that's why I mm-hmm. tell people, if you want to be in my publishing house, I don't, I don't publish – sex mm-hmm. but I publish stories that are of human interest uh, I publish stories for people that are doing children but sex is not me because you can go to any publisher that wants to publish sex and they'll do it for you I'm mm-hmm. just not that person yeah hey and you can go to them and even if you don't want to publish sex they'll help you find sex in somewhere in it to put it on there you know but that's not it uh-huh. Exactly. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, you know, people also, you know, it's like, well, nobody's doing books these days. I'm like, I had a guy that selling, was selling a book tell me that nobody's doing books. And I'm like, either you think I'm really stupid or you're really not conscious today. Uh-huh. Because how would you say to me, no one's doing books and on your table is a book that that was written, mm-hmm. and you're selling it for thirty five dollars a copy. When mm-hmm. you see at this same seminar, I my uh, there's a young person. She's ten years old, and she took my book and she was like, "Oh, this is amazing! I love this book. Mm-hmm. I'm doing chapter books, but this is a great picture book." 
If I had a little sister or brother, I'd be reading this to them right now. So mm-hmm. we have to, that, and unfortunately, it's like anything else. Old habits die hard. Mm-hmm. You know, because either you're known author or you're not, and that's the only thing about having a label. I'm not a known artist. I'm not a known publishing house. I don't go looking for entities to publish. I do make myself available for those people that want to get published. And I don't even have to publish you. What you can do is say you want to write a book. If you call me and you really want to write a book, I'll give you the steps on how to start, where to go. Not even, you don't even have, I don't have to publish you. But because we're a small community of writers, we really have to help each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and encourage each other. So what's next for you? I know you're talking about your, you've got more books coming out. What are you, what's next? Well, I write my books under the Mommy Readers Collection. So there's a series of 12. Mm-hmm. And so I've got the second one written. I've got a third one that's going to be written. It's just a small book, and we're going to put it online more than likely um, mm-hmm. just to kind of start to build the following because nobody knows who I am. I'm virtually mm-hmm. an, unknown, an, an independent unknown artist. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that people get to know you is they have to be able to pick up your brand. Mm-hmm. And um, so- I'm teaching – of course, uh-huh. I teach at Cellbotics uh, once uh-huh. a month. Um, my, class, my class size is very small. My maximum is six uh-huh. because it's hands-on and it's intense. Anybody comes to my class, they'll tell you, if you didn't come to learn, it's the wrong place because uh-huh. you're going to get in and go back home. Because we, <laughs> well, we do hands-on immersive training, uh-huh. and I'm going to drill you until you get it. Uh-huh. And I'm not going to let you go, and I'm not going to let you fail. I will stay there and make you do it until you get it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I have to have small class sizes because people, some, some people need a little bit more than others. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I'm going to be traveling. Mm-hmm. I'm also, uh, right now I'm serving as a fiduciary. I have a client that has a sizable sports memorabilia collection that he is um, liquidating because he wants to retire. He mm-hmm. wants to retire and live on a small little place and have his boat and his he's got two little puppies and so he's like I'm letting it go. I want to retire and I need you to help me. And so a friend of mine's called me and he's like You wanna get it done? Call Michelle, she'll get it done. Mm-hmm. And then I have my forty year class reunion that's this weekend. So I'm going to that, <laughs> and, uh, and then I'm uh, traveling to Seattle because I've never been there. I want to see Space Needle and just a couple of things on my, uh, what is it, events before I go to heaven list. One of those uh-huh. things is I want to meet Michelle Obama. The other one is I want to meet Oprah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I want to have, well, this is my fourth year of battling breast cancer. Make sure it's that magical number, five years, because once you get to five years, as you well know, you're in remission. Mm-hmm. 
after they test and everything. And so once they say five years, I'm going to have the biggest party ever. I'm probably going to spend three or $4,000 and just have a super-duper party. So y'all look out for that because, you know, I'm going to be inviting everybody. It's going to be all well, over Facebook and everything. I'm just mm-hmm. done. Yes, sir. You know, and, you know, like you said, it, it's it's not in their hands. It's, you know, doctors can tell you and everything else, but it's not in their hands. You have work to do, and you will have as much time as is needed for you to do your work. How can people contact you about What's the best way for people to contact you if they want to find out if they're ready to get into that boot camp and learn about about the computer work or if they just want to get some encouragement for their writing, find out about it? What's the best way for people to contact you? Okay. Now, if you want to sign up for our boot camp, mm-hmm. it's eight days of device masters. You go to www.cellbotics.com. That's www. C E L L B O T I C S dot com, and you can look at our schedule and pick a class that's right for you. Now, if you're interested in getting your book published or interested in starting to write a book, you can contact me at Michelle underscore TCL one at TMRCUS dot com. That's Michelle M I C H E L L E underscore. T-C-L-1 at T-M-R-C-U-S dot com. That stands for the Mommy Readers Collection. That's the, co- the collection of books that I write under. Mm-hmm. My publishing arm is M.L. Cox Media. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Michelle, I want to thank you for spending the time with me this evening and talking about all you do. I mean, we, we are go- I'm, look- I'm already marking my calendar for that party. I'm hey, you should. Calendar. I'm going to mark my calendar thing. for that party. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to let everybody know, if you'd like to help, um, if you don't have kids but you'd like to buy a book to donate, you can go to my website. We're doing a pre-order, and the website is www.tmrcus.com for Mommy is a Computer Smarter Than Me. Buy books mm-hmm. give them and donate them to schools if you don't have children or siblings or nieces and nephews or grandkids to give them to. That's great. So I want you also to, I mean, keep me apprised of when the new books come out. I'm going to put that up there. I will, when we post this show, also the links to your sites because you do need to be known. Kids need to read these books, and it's really important that, you know, we don't have knowledge up in our head and not pass it on to the next generation. And books are a great way of doing it, reading it, the images. I love what you're doing. Michelle, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Michelle, and I love what you're doing. I am humbled and honored that you picked me as one of your uh, new alums to interview and to share my story. I want to thank today's guest, computer guru, breast cancer survivor, and children's book author, Michelle Cox, for sharing her inspirational story of resistance, resilience, and persistence. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of Collections on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.